newspaper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. It's the Media Project for more than 30 years, your window into newsroom decision-making and the ethical challenges that often confront folks in the local media. That's because that's what we have done and are doing. I'm Rex Smith, former editor of the Times Union, now writing The Upstate American. And I'm here this week with Barbara Lombardo, the former executive editor of The Saratogian and The Record of Troy, and Ian Pickus, the news director of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. How y'all doing? Excited to be back. Ah, Likewise. Somebody must have called in. <laughs> <laughs> You're glad to be here, Barbara? Always. Always, always good. Well, you know, those of us who are officially retired from the news business, unlike Ian, who is still going at it more hours than he sleeps, probably more hours than you do anything else, as a matter of fact, if I know the newsroom, yeah. Anyway, so we are former journalists, which is fine. We retired honorably, you might say. But one of the things that is interesting to talk about, which was raised by a veteran journalist named Roy Peter Clark from the Pointer Institute, is the sort of denigration that, that attaches to people who leave the news business really for anything, for more <laughs> lucrative pursuits, right? I mean, we are not kind about that. Well, the denigration is especially for people who stay in the business that involves writing but they are now advocates for something. Aha. Uh -huh. That's called going to the dark side. Oh, yes, that term. Well, you know, should it be? It's almost as though it makes it sound like we're part of the priesthood. <laughs> yeah, I think there's an amount of condescension in it, although the dark side has better hours and more pay typically. So how dark is it? Yeah, I think this article resonated with me because I'm guilty, especially now at this age when, you know, having been in it for a while, a lot of the people I started out with have fallen away from the journalism business. They've become PR people. They've gotten involved in lobbying efforts. They've joined up with elected officials they once covered to help them craft their messaging. So they know how the game works, and now they're on the other side, and you know, there's a bit of strife there between those of us who have stayed in the news side and uh, everyone who's a little, you know, better rested <laughs> on the other <laughs> side now. And yeah, you see the lifers in journalism. I think it's going to be harder and harder to be one of those. Yeah. You know, it is interesting that uh, a couple of years ago in this program, we cited a statistic saying that there were seven people working in public relations for every person working in journalism. Since then, of course, there's been a significant decline over the last couple of years in the number of journalists. And I did a quick back of the envelope calculation a couple of weeks ago and thought that it's now better than nine to one PR people versus journalists. But I think that when we denigrate these people who have left our ranks and gone to public relations or some sort of representation, we tend to not admit how much journalism depends upon that kind of thing. You know, we actually do take a lot of information from 
uh, sources who are closer to it, who are paid for their information access. Yeah, I would say using the term dark side has always been sort of a semi-humorous, semi-sad, maybe semi-serious <laughs> jab. Like, you mean you'd rather have normal hours, weekends off, not get beaten up by the public? Like, for what? You're not going to have as much fun. And, and you can have as much fun, as it turns out. I remember there was one... Um, uh, excellent journalist who works for who worked for me, and she was doing you know, reporting, editing. Then she was doing social media, and I think sometimes I would drive her to tears of frustration as she would try over and over to teach me how to use social media correctly. <laughs> um, but then she drove me to tears one day talking in my office about how she could not afford to keep this job. Yeah, and how frustrating it was for me to fight over and over again this losing battle with her with our owners to say, I'm losing great people because they cannot afford to work in journalism. You know, that's an economic reality, and I don't hold that against anybody who leaves journalism so that they can have a life. Yeah, that's important. I've had that experience on both sides. I have watched people go and said, God bless you. You know, you're going to get an instant $20,000 raise as soon as you walk out this door. That's great. And on the other hand, I have really gone to the mat with my publisher to say, you have to hit an extra huge amount of money to keep this person. This person is too valuable to lose and was lucky enough to have a publisher who, who would do that. But then you recognize if I'm really paying this person a lot more than anybody else in the newsroom, A, they've got to be really worth it and I've got to be able to take the criticism of the people who are recognizing that I've made a, a real effort that I'm not making for somebody else. Anyway, that's just some of the hard stuff to try to figure out. But you're right, um, Rex, about the value of people who are good at their jobs in communications, in public relations, in crisis communications, working for whatever organization it may be. And we depend on those people more. We as journalists, although I'm a former professional journalist, I say I'm still, a, I still, in my heart, I'm still a journalist and always will be. You never went to the dark side. This is true. I did. I spent four years. I was a legislative aide and press secretary to an obscure member of Congress from the Midwest who did not rise from obscurity during my stewardship of his press relations. <laughs> uh, I was young. I had worked for a year and a half at a little newspaper in the Midwest, and suddenly here in swooped this new congressman. He'd only been on the job a few months, and he said, I want you to come to Washington. Wow, stars in my eyes, you know? And I remember telling people, well, I'm going to be the eyes and ears for the media of the Second District of Indiana in Washington. Well, no, no, that's not your job. My job was actually to tell stories in such a way that would help him get reelected. So that's the catch, is yeah. that when they are telling stories, it's definitely with a point of view. And it's not that news people are always are without a point of view. We certainly have feelings and we have emotions and we have preferences, and, and that's going to be reflected in what we cover and how we write what we cover. I wouldn't pretend otherwise. But for people working in public relations jobs, communication jobs, their first and foremost job is to protect the organization or the person they're working for and put them in a positive light. And if we as journalists are not good enough to see that and uh, do the independent reporting notwithstanding, shame on us. I used to go in early at least one morning a week when I worked in Washington and I had a little cart machine. I had I'd done a little bit of radio work before that, and I would actually do wraparound reports with two cuts from the congressman as though I was the Washington correspondent. And I would actually close it uh, in Washington, Rex Smith for WASK News. And a lot of these stations would air it that way without saying Rex Smith from Congressman Fithian's office is reporting. 
Now, I don't think that journalists would do that now. Maybe so. Maybe in other parts of the country. That doesn't happen in this part of the country. You don't know any place around here. But like I think this. a version of that exists. There's the prepackaged thing. Oh, you couldn't make it to our groundbreaking today. Right. Here's the B-roll. We professionally shot it. We're a PR outlet. You can use it. No problem. Yeah. I think a lot of that happens. And now that we have fewer people to cover stories and that type of thing is very easy to just put on the air, that does happen a lot more. Right. And savvy PR people know it. Yeah. And we actually, even uh, during, uh, you know, I retired from the editorship uh, just before the pandemic, but even in those last few years of that, uh, we were asking PR people to send us photographs to accompany their stories. And we're looking, at, whereas previously, I would have always said, no, no, we'll send our own photographer. But th then I used to have 10 photographers on the staff. And you can't do that when you're down to three photographers. On so. the simplest level, organizations and politicians' offices will send out press releases, and they include these quotes that nobody ever really said. Oh, yeah. It reads more like something somebody would have written because somebody did write it. And I used to mock the with my staff, we would mock the Schenectady Gazette, no offense to Judy or to Miles now. We would mock them because they were basically running this press release verbatim. And it still drives me crazy whenever that happens. It happens in my old paper a sure. lot now, too, mm -hmm. that it makes it look like somebody on your staff interviewed these people. It doesn't say said in a press release. A Even that statement. very, mm -hmm. yes, in the very basic step of transparency. It should be clear that we didn't talk to these people. Probably shouldn't even be quoting them ad nauseum that way. Right. I used to coach the congressman on how to use the canned statements that I wrote for him, how to deliver them so that it sounded like he wasn't reading. <laughs> and I said, you know, stretch out a word or say, uh, here, stop it for just a minute to make it sound like you're really talking to someone instead of just reading what I wrote for you. And he was pretty good at that because he would lose his place in the reading and legitimately go, um. <laughs> it was very effective. But the difficulty, too, is now because there are so many people in public relations and because there are fewer journalists, there is this assumption on the part of a lot of the PR practitioners that we don't get access to the principals, to the people they're working for. If you're a member of the assembly, if you're a member of the governor's cabinet, it used to be that we would demand to speak to that person. And now, typically, you have to interview them by email or you're held up from getting to talk to them. And especially for radio, where you live for the actuality, you want the sound of that person's voice. It's really so much harder to get people nowadays than it used to be. We've taken to just outright skipping certain things. Like, there will be an announcement coming from a governor's office, and there will be a press conference about it that's on background with a senior official they don't want named. Well, I can't use that at all. Right. I'd rather just not even know. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a standard that we ought to set more often to say, if, if we can't have an opportunity to actually talk to someone and ask questions, ask follow-up questions, that story is probably not going to get covered. I think that's the biggest danger and the biggest loss of the prevalent use now of public relations. I remember as a reporter and as an editor, I depended on being able to call or visit with experts in their fields. So it could be we're writing about an environmental issue affecting the state, and I could call somebody in the state who was an expert in that area and actually talk to them and understand what they were. I may or may not be quoting them, 
but at least I could even become more knowledgeable about what I was writing about or I could put it into perspective. I knew who else I needed to talk to, what other information I needed. Now we, if the public relations person is the gateway to that information, we, we miss all of that. And, and then there's some very good ones at, at University of Albany, Jordan Carlio Evangelist, who was an excellent, excellent reporter. Yes, City indeed. Hall, <laughs> City Hall ace reporter for the Times, for the Times, Times Union. Union. Mm-hmm. I think he's doing an excellent job as the head of communications, whatever, mm-hmm. I'm not sure of your title, sorry, Jordan, for University of Albany. And when I would have my students trying to write stories about things going on at the university, we often would not hear back from the departments we were trying, that each reporter was trying to reach. So we would go to him, hey, help us connect to those people. So he was very good at being, uh, and still is, as far as I know, being good at connecting mm-hmm. to the people who you need to talk to. Also, by the way, it's hard to get in. There's more security now. In the aftermath of 9-11, even, people began closing down doors. And then with COVID, it got even more so that way. When I covered state government, you know, the, the legislative offices were up on the third floor of the Capitol. You could wander down to the second floor where the governor's offices were and just drop into the office of a chief of staff or something and, and start to chat up people and gradually uh, have access to them. You can't do that anymore. There's security in the way. So you can't go back to where covering the legislature has now been clamped down by in the in New York State the assembly speaker Carl Hasty has closed off areas that used to be accessible to reporters it's much harder to cover people genuinely the problem is actually trying to even understand things that are couched in certain terms a great example was uh, the recent report that came out of the special counsel's office having to do with uh, the special counsel Robert Hur having to do with President Biden's handling of classified material there was a summary that has made much of the news coverage frustrated about the fact of uh, the president's age and how he couldn't remember certain things. And the White House has pushed back about this, saying reporters have mischaracterized this report overall by focusing on just that part of it that took shots at the president. That's journalistic laziness, isn't it? Or is that a fair criticism, do we think? You know, if I were looking at that report, I think that's what I would focus on. That would be my one or one A. You know, we've talked about this on the show before. No president likes their press coverage. They all have gripes. They all have complaints. Some of them make the war with the press what they do. We've seen that in recent years also. To say that the press focused on, you know, a salacious part of the report instead of focusing on the fact that President Biden won't be charged and that he cooperated... I can understand why they're fighting the fight. I don't think it's a winning fight. You have a narrative that exists among voters that President Biden seems too old. And now you have a view into a room that the public wasn't in where President Biden sat for these interviews. And the takeaway was he's very forgetful. I don't know how you oh, don't you're leave killing with that. me. You're killing me. And you got to use a, a word that I think my brother coined insuccorated. <laughs> you and the rest of the mainstream media shouldn't they be complaining to the special counsel and not the reporters well there was the reporters who cherry-picked that was a gift to the republican party let's face it that was a gift they know okay we're all savvy people we as journalists and we feel like we could do a good job if we were on the dark side also that if we put this stuff in there and term it the way that that they have it termed in there oh the media is going to jump all over this because we love to jump all over that. It's it's uh, it's catchy. It's easy. It's the golden it's, quote. 
It is. And in, and wouldn't and, we be and, just and, running interference for Biden by burying it? I'm not saying burying it, but the main thing would be that they didn't find that he did anything willfully wrong, which was misreported over and over again. It was reported as if he did willfully do something wrong. The findings were not. So Biden cleared, and then the subhead could be challenges his mental acuity or something. So it's a nuance. You're talking about how to structure the story, which is really how we often deal with this. You know, when we're editors, we might say, you know, I think that's not the lead. I think this is the lead. And so what you're saying is if the lead in the headlines said report finds Biden didn't break the law, then the second paragraph would say, but the special counsel did say blah, 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 and give you the golden quote. As opposed to, and I suspect the Fox News report of it was the other way around, that Biden was found to be forgetful and old by the special counsel. And then down below it says he broke the report because it is interesting. It was internally contradictory, this report. It was littered with her, the the, the uh, special counsel, H-U-R, with plausible explanations for Biden's behavior that rebut the notion that he intentionally broke the law. But at the same time, it said... Quote, we uncovered evidence that President Biden willfully retained and disclosed classified material after his vice presidency. So the report was internally contradictory, and it becomes a really tough question when you're covering it, how you depict it then. It's Uh, reminiscent of what happened with Comey in 2016, 10 days out from the election on Hillary Clinton's email server. The ex post facto New York Times audit that happened showed that they covered the emails wildly out of proportion. However, isn't the issue with James Comey putting his thumb on the scale and saying this was really a, a you know a bad use of judgment on Hillary's part by having the private server, even though we're not going to charge her, uh, here's the slap on the wrist. The issue is with Comey putting that in the report. I don't know how the press is supposed to leave it out. In the initial coverage, but I think the question about that was the follow-up, the continual, the continual. When someone like uh, uh, Chris Wallace, for example, within with NBC News, would kept going in a half-hour interview with Hillary, he kept going back to this. But your emails, but your emails, um, and uh, so I, there was. I think that was Comey's fault initially, and the media had to report that. But there was blame to go around in that one, it seems to me. We're a soundbite society, and, like, there's a word for it. What's the takeaway? Oh, Mr. Radio Man. <laughs> <laughs> like, so what What have I learned from you? By If somebody has something that might be newsworthy, but they don't have a soundbite, the heck with it, we're not covering it. If it sounds good, but it's not quite nuanced Special counsel, enough, Barb Lombardo. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Let's go with it. Wow, great. Oh, by man. the way, Barbara teaches at University of Dalton now, <laughs> so you can have the benefit of this by just a little tuition payment and you can actually get this instruction. This is good. Very interesting. That's Barbara Lombardo, formerly editor of the Saratogan and the uh, Record in Troy. Ian Pickus, uh, news director of Northeast Public Radio and I'm Rex Smith, formerly of the Times Union here. This is the Media Project. If you want to have your point of view heard here, media at wamc.org is how you can share your thoughts with us. And we thank listener Barbara who sent to us, oh, I love the Media Project. I listen weekly, and I listen to many shows again on the WAMC website during the week. Thank you. That's WAMC.org. That wasn't from me. That was not that, Barbara. That was another, a different Barbara. Very kind. We thank you. And, and you know, talk about media dysfunction or... Um, Hmm. What would you call? Uh, we we didn't really get into Tucker Carlson's uh, softball interview with Putin very well. 
last time, and I think we just need to say a word about this uh, before we go on, because Tucker Carlson was, of course, one of the highest paid guys in broadcast journalism, one of the most popular shows before he was uh, fired from Fox. And now he's trying to bring his career back by saying, wow, I'm interviewing Vladimir Putin. Not very well, most of us would think, right? It was desperation. I mean, he's looking to reestablish his brand, and he kind of threw a Hail Mary pass and did it. You know, I don't know that if I were him, I would want to be the, the Putin patsy uh, laundering the war criminal, but I don't see how you could say it's anything other than just a stab at relevance after being fired by Fox. Well, you can't understand it because you have integrity as a journalist. <laughs> yeah. He, he could care less about being a Putin path. I think uh, the better term is Putin poodle because you got the internal rhymery Thank there. Thank you. It's yeah. easier that to is say. Everyone yeah. needs a good editor. <laughs> seashells, seashells at the seashore. <laughs> Putin's poodle is actually a good term. I think it's a big contest between whether it's Tucker Carlson or Donald Trump. But anyway, that's just my uh, point of view. And he's I'm just a, trying to advance himself. An opinion journalist now. And he's not a journalist. Mm, yeah, I think that's true. And so uh, in the realm of the conversation we began with, uh, the flax, uh, there are flax and hacks, you know, and uh, Carlson is nothing but a hack. Uh, and... And we'll, uh, you shouldn't trust anything he says, folks, because if he's willing to do this. Uh, but we are presuming folks who are listening to public radio might already have that perspective on Carlson. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Anyway, say, uh, speaking of public radio, uh, we ought to say something uh, about these regional newsrooms that NPR is establishing. Because uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this new uh, collaboration that WAMC is a part of that is statewide. And so this regional newsroom is something kind of like that. Is that right? Yeah, they've been working on setting up these hubs. One of them will be near here, the New England uh, News Collaborative, which has existed already for a little while. I think the, the big question for us to figure out is because what I've noticed that's new this week is talk about financially supporting continued operations, which is new. If we're going down this road of sort of a new NPR national network that's really reliant on collaboration with the public newsrooms that exist as member stations. What does that look like in the long run? And the real question, and I don't think anyone has the answer to, is that in the long run something that, you know, can stand on its own and be at least breaking even? Right, right. Because uh, if you're you're chasing a certain limited number of dollars. Now exactly. That, uh, because all of the member stations are trying to raise money from donors. But there's a now a, a button, apparently, on NPR.org to give directly to the NPR network. And last year, that brought in $1.6 million from 15,000 gifts. Well, nationally, that's not actually a lot of money. Right. When you consider that WAMC raises uh, $3 million a year from donors from these fund drives, and maybe more than that this year. So that suggests that this is going to be it's going to be hard to sustain this unless they have other sources of revenue for these regional newsrooms. It's hmm. like all of, you know, the kind of journalism that happens in public media newsrooms. It's number one, a public good. It's, it's not really a, a profit chasing endeavor. So if we're, if we're going to agree that that's important, then it's going to take major gifts. Obviously, it's going to take some sort of sustainable flow of money. And, you know, for member stations like us, the NPR bill goes up every year. So if there's some sort of, you know, uh, two-way street, maybe it's good in the long run. 
Hmm. Is, is WAMC involved in the New England News Collaborative? No. Hmm. Even though you, uh, you know, you broadcast into New England, but you're because you're physically located, your main studios here. Right. We're yeah. not in this hub, but we have worked with many of the stations that are in the hub and, and do work with um, actively. But, yeah, we're not officially in the hub. Well, it really is one of the great trends in modern journalism and the, the business of journalism, and that is the emergence of not-for-profit as not just something to support public broadcasting, which it has been now for 50 years, but something that is increasingly replacing, and we've talked about this here, replacing for-profit uh, news operations. Uh, the difficulty is there are only a certain number of news consumers, and that seems to be shrinking. And so if everybody is chasing those who are contributing to that pie, it's going to be applying pressure everywhere. And it's at, at a time when it's more and more expensive to do good work that we're talking about. Because we have to pay for those journalists to keep them on the job instead exactly. of sending them off, right? As we discussed so you know at the where. beginning, it's all one story, folks. It's all one big story. All right, that's all we have time for this week. I'm sorry to say, uh, Barbara Lombardo, uh, thank you for your insight as always and for uh, uh, holding Ian's feet to the fire on very interesting points here. <laughs> I have only respect for Ian. I hope I he know. knows that. Absolutely. Ian Pickus of uh, WAMC is here, and I'm Rex Smith, formerly of the Times Union now, the upstate American, we call that. We are grateful to David Gustina, our producer, for making this happen every week, and to you folks for joining us, which we hope you will do again next week. Join us on The Media Project. To her uncle in Kodunk. Now newspapermen meet such interesting people. It must have startled poor old Sadie's unk. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Hold the press, hold the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. Like the richest girl who could not bake a cake. Ting-a-ling, ting-a-ling, ling-a-ling-a-ling. Now, newspapermen are such interesting people. The Media Project is a national production of WAMC, Northeast Public Radio. This week's projectors include former Times Union editor and current Substack columnist of the Upstate American, Rex Smith, Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette and vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association, Barbara Lombardo, the former editor of the Saratogia and a journalism professor at the University at Albany, and WAMC News Director Ian Pickus. You can listen to The Media Project anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm your producer, David Gustina. Thanks for listening. Now, publishers of such interesting people, their policy is an acrobatic thing. They claim to represent the common people. Funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs>